With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live.
Massey. We're back live with Howard Griswold. Howard, uh, there's over 26 million laws in the country these days. Do you think we need that many? That's my point. Orderly. Here on the Chesapeake Bay. Off of the Delmarva area. Delmarva's a little peninsula hangs out the ocean. Chesapeake uh, Bay's on the west. On the main Atlantic Ocean on the, on the east. So, there's a lot of fishing, grabbing, oystering, and there's uh, little tiny things that shows side of the wishers of land that goes on here. <laughs> We've got clam boats you go out all the time and scrape the clams. They got so many regulations on these poor guys. They can't make any money. They're crying. They're relieved from all these regulations. The chicken industry here. One of the biggest things on on the whole Delmarva Peninsula, the chicken houses. We got chicken houses that are 800 feet long and 100 feet wide. That houses a lot of chickens. They got so many regulations. And they say, now they're trying to regulate the chicken waste. The chicken manure has been used on fields for fertilizer. Forever. Uh, they want that stopped. Or they want it at least cut right now. Because the rain washes and into the water and it's contaminating the water. Well, it's been doing that forever. All of a sudden, it's a problem. The higher we educate these people, the dumber they get. And the more trouble they cause. Leave the chicken farmer alone. Leave the instrument and the, and the crabbers alone. Let people have a business. No, they can't do that. When I was young and in business, I was in construction. They just kept making more and more regulations, more and more problems. We had to design a house with a sump pump in the basement. But enough, the house is going to cost $500 more because once they put the foundation footings in and then build the walls, up against the edge of the wall, we have to put gravel in before we start back going on the inside of the building, and then lay four-inch pipe that holds in it so the water can get into the pipe, and then put gravel up over that about an inch or two high, and then leave that all around to the pit, and put a sump pump in the pit, and a pipe out of the sump pump, taking it out and wasting it somewhere into a ditch or a drain field or something. At least $500 extra cost. And that was in the 1970s and early 1980s. Today, I imagine that's a $2,000, maybe more than that, $4,000 extra cost to a house. It didn't play. They had to do it with every house. It was not optional for the buyer to decide what they wanted. It wasn't even necessary on every house because it depended upon the type of soil as to whether the soil absorbed a lot of water and would, would put water pressure up against the, the block walls 
and shoot through and perhaps leak into the basement, or in some cases, that ground was such hard place, water just wouldn't seep into it. And they wouldn't need a sump pump, but we got to put it in anyhow. The law said that. This is a kind of oppressive shenanigans. It's all for government to make money off of it and to force people to spend money because if paper money doesn't circulate, paper money crashes. And that's a known fact. Whether anybody out there listening to me understands that or believes it or not, it's a known fact. Read the history of paper money. If it's not kept circulating, then it crashes. Well, why do you think we have all these rules and regulations? It's to force people to spend more money so that it continues to circulate out of necessity, not out of, out of desire. So, these laws that have to be passed to do that become oppressive. They destroy the economy. They weaken the value of the paper money and cause what they call inflation. The money's not inflated. The price is inflated because the money's failing in value. Well, my daughter and two granddaughters, my wife and I, and my daughter's living little idiot to me. She had for about 10 years or so. We're living here. We were spending $40, $45 a week to feed all of us. This was back in the, in the 90s. She finally dumped that moron, found a very decent man, and married him about 12 years ago. He works three different jobs. He spends it with backwards to please her, make her happy, and every bit of money he makes on her and on those two kids. Wonderful guy. And he's taking care of all the expenses now. All the expenses are on me when she had this bum living with me. But it was only 40 bucks a week average at the store. Now, we grow a lot of stuff around here. We carry a lot of stuff. So, you know, we might have spent 60 if we didn't have so much of our own stuff. We had some averaging my wife and I $70 a week at the grocery store, and the daughter and the two granddaughters and, and my daughter's man are gone. They don't live here. She lives in the farm that the young man that she married has. And, and she comes here once in a while. But she doesn't live here. She doesn't live here. My grand, my oldest granddaughter is married, living in the other house here on this property and taking care of herself. And I'm living in their house and eating our food. And the other one is still living with her mother down at the house with her and the other So it's just my wife and I. 70 bucks a week is the average we're spending at the grocery store with the food and food. And we're very conservative. We look for bargains. We don't just go buy. Yeah, that's definitely food inflation is a serious, uh, serious reality. Yeah, indeed it is a serious reality, and getting worse, getting worse all the time. The price. It seems to be that people can't afford to buy a pound of bacon to put on the breakfast table to feed their family. When I was a kid, a pound of bacon was 19 cents. Not anymore. 
Well, like four dollars now, isn't it? Yeah, probably three to five dollars. Yeah. Yeah, three and change anyway. Almost four. But that's here. And these places like New York, California, the prices are a lot higher. It might be closer to five in those places. You <laughs> can't afford to live. These are the kind of things that bring about the kind of tension and problems that are developing all over the world that put thousands of protests in the streets. And nobody probably knows because the United States news media, controlled by lawyers called the United States government, is limited to and what all they can tell you in the news is very limited to. But in 1987, the Russian movement was causing, excuse me, <clears throat> having trouble with congestion again, causing the money, or causing the price to inflate terribly in Russia. The people went to the streets and marched in protest in Russia. In Romania, more in Romania than in Russia at that time. The KGB, that's the police in Russia, and under Russian-controlled countries like Romania, Poland, and Germany, and over there, Czechoslovakia, and all those other ones are under under Russian communist control. The KGB went out on the streets with their guns, shot some people. Use tear gas on, use whips on, woke up the clouds, and set them up. Now, this was all over the place. This wasn't just one central location on a little bit of a skirmish. This was quite a few different areas. You get 10 seconds, I would. The next day, the people came back with their guns and sold every KGB agent that they could find. And the day after that, the Russian government collapsed and the Iron Curtain fell, and it's been open ever since. Pastor Matson, that's the rest of the story. We'll see you tomorrow night, right back here, live with our student council. God bless everybody. I'm going to start at the fucking twenty-five. Minute mark. This call with uh, Freedom's Radio, Star Blackstone on Right Travel versus Rabbit. Unilaterally engaged in legal research that benefited the district attorney, the people. The judicial officer helped the plaintiff. Now, I'm sure, uh, you know, there's, there's a sports fan or two uh, on the call. Does the umpire play for one of the team? No. Does the line coach or the line judge play for one of the teams in a football game? No. They're neutral parties. They're just, they just call balls and strikes. Did you break a rule? Yes or no. If you do, five-yard penalty or, you know, a ball strike, whatever. But they don't play for either team. At least they're not supposed to. So what this uh, judicial officer, in fact, did, because of her unilateral decision to do legal research, it benefited the plaintiffs, the people, 
it lowered the bar for them and raised the bar for it's the nine o'clock. After uh, after my guy uh, got the uh, judicial officer's largesse, uh, he went ahead and in open court uh, filed the demand for a verified complaint. And the district attorney, in fact, opposed it. And in their opposition uh, to uh, my guy's demand, they claimed, asserted, that they had the authority to delegate their prosecutorial privilege to the arresting agency, or in this case, the arresting officer. That's right. The people's attorney claims that they have the authority to delegate their prerogative to prosecute to the arresting officer. Interestingly enough, the arresting officer prepared what's called, or what's called on the paper, let me be up here, um, a misdemeanor complaint. Now on the now on the misdemeanor <clears throat> complaint, we have the people of the state of California, plaintiff versus Mr. Doe. And then uh, at the bottom of this misdemeanor complaint, we have a line with bearing the signature of the complainant, and the word complainant is under the signature. It turns out that the complainant is the arresting officer. Due process of law. Does the arresting officer, one, have the authority to prepare a criminal complaint? Number one, they're not an attorney. Number two, does a district attorney have the authority to delegate their prosecutorial prerogative to the arresting officer. <laughs> this is serious stuff, folks. The courts are using notice to appear as the basis for them acquiring jurisdiction. The notice to appear is considered the accusatory pleading. Fine, it may be an accusatory pleading, but is the accusatory pleading uh, a complaint, a criminal complaint, yes or no? No, it can't be. Why? Because if the notice to appear was a criminal complaint, which serves the basis for the court acquiring jurisdiction over the subject matter and, and, and the case, here's what happened. The cop out of curbside prepared a criminal complaint and served it before it was filed in court with no oversight. Are you kidding me? It's being done on a routine basis, if that's the case. But fortunately, it's not the case. Because the notice to appear is a notice to appear in the story. Notice doesn't begin with the letter C, unlike the word complaint. A notice is different than a complaint. 
So with regards to the accusatory pleading, okay, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. It's an accusatory pleading. So um, here, here's some uh, court sites for y'all. The charging decision is the heart of the prosecution function. Only the people may file an accusatory pleading. The district attorney, part of the executive branch, is the public prosecutor charged with conducting all prosecution on behalf of the people. And who is the damaged party in a criminal action? We, the people. Our attorney is the district attorney, and what did we just hear the courts tell us? The district attorney, part of the executive branch, is the public prosecutor charged with conducting all prosecutions on behalf of the people. And then what were we informed previously? Only the people may file an accusatory plea. What the district attorney is attempting to sell is that the notice to appear is the accusatory plea. Well, who prepares and serves the accusatory pleading? The cop does. It looks like the cop is invading the, the, the DA's turf. Can't do it. And the, and the DA can't delegate it. Now, this is an interesting, uh, this, this is an interesting uh, statement. The discretionary decision to bring criminal charges rests exclusively in the grand jury and the district or other prosecuting attorney. A police officer is not an attorney. A notice to appear cannot be a complaint, period. Now the, now the question becomes, can the district attorney, is the, does the district attorney have the authority to delegate their prosecutorial privilege, their discretion to the arresting officer? Hell no. And in this guy's case, they, they, they went ahead and were nice, the DA was nice enough to uh, provide what they believe is, is the authority provided by the legislature for them to delegate. However, we've got a big problem because the section the DA relies on has nothing to do with the district attorney. It has to do with the policeman. And the section in question for you folks in California and everywhere else, if you want to take a, a run over to the penal code and check it out, is uh, 853, penal code section 853.6E2. 853.6E2. Neither E nor 2, which I'll go ahead and read. Uh, this, this is penal code section. Um, E, let's get to E two here. That would be helpful. Okay. Uh, let me see. Okay. E. The officer shall file. Shall as soon as practical, practicable, file a duplicate notice as follows. Two. It shall be filed with the magistrate if the prosecuting attorney has previously directed the officer to do so. This is what the district attorney is relying on in their claim that they have the authority to, to delegate their prosecutorial privilege to the cops. They're, they're claiming the officer, as soon as practical, 
practicable shall file a duplicate notice. It doesn't say complaint. The word complaint is not used. The word notice is. And then section two, it shall be filed with the magistrate if the prosecuting attorney has previously directed the officer to do so. The, the, the district attorney has the discretion to direct the officer to file the notice. There is nothing in the two sections, E or 2, that provides the district attorney with the authority to delegate the, pre the preparation of a criminal complaint, let alone file it with the court. Oh, and by the way, the purported misdemeanor complaint signed by the complainant officer, who again is nothing more than the arresting officer and the state's witness. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. In any event, they're, they're claiming that, that the officer can, oh, it was, uh, it, was never, it was never served on my buddy. He actually got a copy of the criminal complaint through discovery. <laughs> Now, 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 that leads to an inter interesting question, at least from where I sit. All you folks who have ever uh, done a small claims action, you know full well that after you've served the defendant, there, there has to be a proof of service filed with the court. If there's no proof of service filed with the court that the defendant was served, you're not going to see the inside of the courtroom. You have to file a proof of service if you want to see the inside of the courtroom and have it be in court. That's how it works. Due process of law. So my guy gets a copy of this purported criminal complaint through discovery, not by a process server. So um, a, a question arises, is there a proof of service on file? I don't think so, but uh, he's going to be up to bat on Friday, so uh, it'll be interesting to um, find out what what happens with that. In any event, I see we're, we're, we're uh, past the top of the hour. So, Martin, if you want to uh, populate the list and we have anybody who wants to make a uh, question or comment, we'll do some of that. All right. Uh, very good. Star two on your keypad, folks, if you have a question. That's for everybody that's on the call with us. If you dial in a number, you put in a pen. Star two at this time to raise your hand. For everybody else listening throughout the country at freedomsradio.com, type your questions in the question bar at this time and click submit. While we're uh, waiting, um, I, I, I don't know if everybody's aware of this or not, but uh, Reverend Al Sharpton has declared war on states' rights. Uh, he wants, um, he's promoting the idea that the uh, federal government should take over policing uh, throughout the country. I don't know if you're all aware of this or not, but uh, that's pretty serious. Um, however, uh, he did he did do something right, and that is he alerted people to what's known as 
states' rights. Ladies and gentlemen, the state constitution provides you with greater protection than does the federal counterpart. And there are states' rights. If there was no, 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 uh, no states' rights, uh, we wouldn't need state constitution. So what he wants to do is he, he wants the federal government, you know, that, that crew in Washington, D.C., he wants them to run the police show. That's funny. That's funny. Remember the day before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld comes out and tells everybody the Pentagon can't find a, a few trillion dollars. The next day, a couple of buildings fall down. Gee, <laughs> guess what was in those, uh, those, those, those two tall buildings? Uh, financial records. Anyway, uh, Reverend Al uh, has declared war on, on the states. And... Uh, uh, you know, folks who are proponents of states' rights, I'm one of those those folks. I don't promote slavery. There is no more slavery. It's over. It's done with. The police are out of control because the people have abandoned their responsibility to control their employees. But um, Reverend Allen is wrong, and uh, he's also an idiot. Anyway, do we have uh, any questions or comments? Uh, no, nothing popping up. Uh, okay, a uh, pretty, pretty decent crowd here tonight. Uh, welcome to uh, all of our new callers. Got uh, quite a few new callers. So we're glad okay. to see them. But no, no questions are popping up. Okay, very good. Well, let's. Uh, I mentioned I was going to read uh, a little bit about conversion. Now, again, um, and, and if you know somebody wants to uh, ask a question or make a comment, feel free to interrupt. Um, I'm reading from. Uh, what am I reading from? This is. Uh, 14, Calger Third, um, page 187. Now, Calger is, Cal, is short for California Jurisprudence. It's a, a legal encyclopedia. And this is volume 14. And I'm reading uh, uh, from page 187. And again, the, the, the topic is conversion. Uh, section 1, in general, definition and elements of conversion. Conversion has been defined as the exercise of dominion over the personal property of another in exclusion or defiance of the latter's right as any act of dominion wrongfully exerted over another's personal property in denial of or inconsistent with his or her right to it or as an unwarranted interference by the defendant uh, with dominion over the personal property of the plaintiff. Conversion involves actual interference with the plaintiff's dominion or ownership rights. But any wrongful assumption of authority over a chattel inconsistent with another's right of possession or subversive to his or her vested interest in it amounts to a conversion. Conversion. Uh, some characteristics of uh, conversion are the following. Uh, Let's see. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 I did something here. I um, demonstrated my, uh, <laughs> my inability to be consistent. I went from, uh, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, when I got started doing this stuff years ago, um, I spent a lot of time in uh, law library, so I uh, Xeroxed off a lot of sheets of paper. Instead of going to Vegas and, Hopping 
nickels in, in, in those machines over there. I went over to the law library and stuffed nickels into the copy machine. So there are pages that uh, uh, I unfortunately left out. Anyway, um, I'll skip the uh, elements and characteristics of conversion on the following uh, because I don't have that page. And, sorry about that. Um, Let's go to some other stuff. Strictly, uh, that's something else. We can, okay, conversion. Uh, section three, intent or mental state. Conversion consists of the breach of what may be called an absolute duty. The act itself is unlawful and is redressable as a tort. Now, for those of you uh, folks who are getting uh, started in your uh, law studies, uh, maybe unfamiliar with civil and criminal, uh, a tort uh, it is civil. And tort, uh, simply uh, defined, is twisted. It's French for twisted. It's not straight, it's twisted. So there's something twisted about the behavior. So the act itself is unlawful and is redressable as a tort. It is an instance of liability in which care, good faith, and lack of knowledge will not save the defendant. In short, conversion is a strict liability tort, and negligence is not an element. As seen from the above, the motive for the defendant's act is ordinarily immaterial, and the foundation for the action rests neither in the knowledge nor in the intent of the defendant. Thus, though the defendant may have acted in good faith, well, he obviously told me to do it, or under under a mistake, well, I, I didn't know, he or she is not exonerated from liability for conversion where the law charges him or her with a duty to know before intruding. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the um, con converter, the party who engages in, conver in, in conversion, exercises un unwanted or un unauthorized dominion or uh, uh, over your property, cannot use the Nuremberg defense. Well, Hitler told us to do it. Sorry, pal. You're supposed to know that murder is uh, not authorized by the Fuhrer. It's a strict liability tort. So, uh, uh, Mr. Chodotrack driver, did you touch my car? Well, yeah, I had to. I had to attach to the tow truck. Uh, okay, great. And uh, was it your car? No, it was your car. Thank you. Do you have my consent to touch it? No, you can't tell me to do it. Sorry, pal. Pay me. Conversion is an intentional tort, which requires the intentional act of taking possession of the goods of somebody else. This is precisely what a tow truck driver does. He takes something that doesn't belong to him. Conversion is an intentional taking of property. The tow truck driver intended to touch your car with the intended purpose of hooking it up to his tow truck, which he intended then to, have to tow to the tow yard. You are so good to go, it's, it's incredible. And he can't claim that, well, the officer told him to do it. So it doesn't work that way. 
Now, here's a conspiracy. This is Section 7, conspiracy. All those who joined in a conspiracy pursuant to which a conversion was actually committed may be convicted of the conversion or, in civil parlance, held liable. Concert of action and unity of design may be proved by circumstantial evidence. That is, they may be inferred from the nature of the acts uh, done, the relation of the parties, their respective interests, their acts, conduct, and declarations, and other circumstances. Remedies for the wrongful taking of property. This is section 9. A person who has been deprived of possession of personal property by an act amounting to a conversion may bring either an action for a recovery of the specific property, give me my car back, in which he or she may also claim damages for its conversion. Oh, and I want $2,500 for you taking it from me. Sound good? I think so. In order to charge a defendant with conversion of the plaintiff's goods, the defendant must have done some act implying either the assumption of title or exercise of dominion over the goods, or some act inconsistent with the plaintiff's right of ownership. Ladies and gentlemen, this stuff doesn't get much better. Oh, and by the way, it is not necessary that there be a manual taking. So if the tow truck driver is leaning up against my door when I come out of the, the grocery store, he is interfering with my ownership rights. He is preventing or obstructing my enjoyment of my property or the exercise of my, my dominion over my property. Section 15, in order to charge a defendant with conversion of the plaintiff's goods, the defendant must have done some act implying the assumption of title or exercise of dominion. Exercise of dominion is someone walking up to your car, grabbing your windshield wiper blade and sticking something under it. Any of you folks get one of those, uh, in your neighborhood, you ever left your car uh, on the street for over 72 hours and the parking people come along, parking enforcement people, and you stick one of those red warning signs under your windshield uh, wiper blade, warning, you got to move your car within, uh, you know, uh, 72 hours, and then there's chalk marks on your tire. That's conversion. They touched your car without your consent, and then they, they, they took their chalk and put it on your tire. They exercised dominion over your property. Doesn't seem like much, but guess what? It's sufficient. They owe you. Because when you look at those red warnings, at least out here in California, you'll see stored or abandoned. I had a, had a car, a Volvo station wagon. It was sitting out under the under the tree in front of the house, and uh, uh, one day I, I came out and I, I noticed that there was a red warning sign on it with some, and I noticed there was some chalk on the tire. Hey, all right, 
I, I didn't I didn't give anybody authority to stick their stuff on my car. Now, as far as what you need to establish, as far as conversion goes, it's only necessary to show an assumption of control. Hey, officer, uh, did, did you uh, did you put this red warning sign on my car? Yeah, and in order, and, and did you put it under the windshield wiper blade? Yeah. So did you, did you have to lift up the windshield wiper blade to stick the warning sign uh, under it? Yeah. That appears to be an assumption of control in my world. Although a wrongful taking of personal property, either by force or fraud, generally amounts to conversion, actual forcible dispossession of the plaintiff is not necessary, since any unlawful interference with property or exercise of dominion over it that causes the owner damages is sufficient. Did you have to take uh, time out of your day to wash the chalk off the tire? The, the, the chalk that belonged to somebody else? Yeah. That's time. It's your time. How much is your time worth? I don't know. That's, that's up to you. Conversion can also be committed by denying the owner access to his or her property. Again, it's like if you come out of the store and I'm leaning up against your car door and I'm not letting you get in, I'm denying you access. I'm exercising control or dominion over your property, which is inconsistent with your rights. Action, uh, section 16, action as distinguished from intention or conspiracy. Action amounting to a conversion is an essential element of the tort. Where a conspiratorial agreement to commit a conversion is actually carried out, each person who knowingly participates in the agreement becomes liable for the conversion, like the police officer, maybe, who told the officer to take it. Tell me that's not a conspiracy. By the way, uh, those of you folks who may not be aware of it, conspiracy means nothing more than breathing together. Look it up. It's typically used as a uh, pejorative or something demeaning. Oh, conspiracy theorists. <clears throat> well, it's not a theory if it's actually been done. <laughs> it's actual. The cop told the uh, tow truck driver to do it. It ain't a theory. It's conspiracy. Two people breathe together and accomplish, and, and accomplish the task. What was the task? Depriving you of your property. Nothing, nothing you know, conspiratorial has nothing to do with it. They did it. Unsubstantial intermeddling, this is section 17. To constitute conversion, there must be a substantial interference with possession or with the right to possession. Well, clearly, if a cop takes your car and you gotta walk home, uh, there's been a substantial interference with the possession or with the right to, with your right uh, to possession. You don't have your car, you gotta walk home, take a cab. Um, conversion is an intentional exercise of dominion or control over a chattel that so seriously interferes with the right of another to control it that the actor may justly be required to pay the other the full value of the chattel. You'll find that in the restatement of torts, uh, second, section 222A. What's this all translate into? You get paid for someone interfering with your ownership right if they don't if they didn't have your, your authority or, or your consent to do so 
possessory acts taking. This is section 21. Examples of an improper taking include the taking of property by an unwarranted seizure. An officer who has your car impounded at the side of the road has made a seizure without a warrant. Officer, at the time of your contact, were you in possession of or responding to uh, a warrant for my arrest or the seizure of my car? No. And then if they take your car, it's an unwarranted seizure. Ladies and gentlemen, on its face, that is illegal because you're presumed innocent. You are presumed innocent up until the moment you are found guilty in a court of law. The cop who takes your car out of curbside has uh, uh, accused, tried, and convicted you and imposed punishment. I saw you do something. I took your car. Yeah, but I, but, hey, what? Yeah, but I didn't have my day in court. It's, 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 uh, uh, um, it's a, a deprivation prior to uh, a hearing. <laughs> a pre-trial deprivation. It's a civil forfeiture nonsense. Cops are stealing money from people. They're denying, they're denying the party they, 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 they took the money from their day in court. The cops are just rolling up on people, taking their money. And then, in the states that are doing this, the uh, burden of proof is shifted to the party to prove uh, that they're entitled to get, get the money back. What? Civil forfeiture. It's, called, it's highway robbery. I don't understand why people, uh, <laughs> why people are tolerating this stuff. A cop just because you have $15,000 in your possession doesn't mean you got it from selling drugs or, or illegal gambling or anything. But a cop's just taking it. Really? This okay with you folks? I mean, come on. Cops are stealing. Number one, they're, they're breaking the law. They're, you're, you're being subjected to a warrantless arrest for non-criminal behavior. Then on top of that, oh, which they get paid for. Then on top of that, they steal whatever you got. And then you have to prove you're entitled to it if you, if you hope to get it back. Talk about burden shifting. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got serious problems in this country. We don't know what our unalienable right. Al, now Al Sharpton, he wants to, he wants to, uh, he wants the states to have uh, control over policing and stuff like that. And, and his his big uh, cause for that is civil rights. I could give a rat's ass about civil rights. I care about the rights I was born with. You can't get rid of them. You can agree not to use them, but you can't get rid of them. Unlike a body part, civil rights come from man. Unalienable rights come from whoever invented the universe. Okay? It's just that simple. You had them when you got here. They're already bought and paid for. You don't have to ask for permission to use them. You don't have to have a license to use them. I don't care about civil rights. And he forgot the history of how, uh, of what went 
what the whole purpose is in the 13th and 14th Amendment was. Once his ancestors were free, they're free. So let's say uh, his great 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 grandparents, once they were freed, they had a they had a, a baby in uh, New Jersey. That baby becomes a state citizen. That's where that baby popped out. It popped out in one of the states. Where the baby pops out establishes its primary status. Al doesn't want you to know that there's two types of citizens in this country, state and federal. Choice is yours. If you want to be a U.S. citizen, fine, be one. If you want to be a state citizen, be one. Is there any benefit? Now, now I know that there's people on call more than likely who don't want to debate the citizen issue, and that's okay, fine. But I have a question. If there's no such thing as state citizenship, then why the hell has the federal Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court referred to something that doesn't exist? Makes absolutely no sense. If there's no such thing as state citizenship, then why would courts talk about it? It makes absolutely no sense. Again, both state and federal Supreme Courts have acknowledged their state citizenship. A U.S. citizen is someone who's a member of a company named the United States. <laughs> Look it up. There's plenty of case law on this stuff, man. It's all out there if you want to find it. Al Sharpton is a, is a federal citizen. He is a citizen of the federal government. He doesn't want to be a citizen of New Jersey, New York, Virginia, Montana, Oregon, Washington. That's his decision. He wants the benefits offered by the company. No problem. The company will not issue those benefits, Social Security, unless you become a member of the company. If you're a U.S. citizen, you're the lowest rung on the federal ladder. Senators are farther up. You know, you've heard the term pay grade before. There's pay grades associated with each employee. State uh, U.S. citizens are the lowest rung. You want Uncle Sam's benefits? You got to become a member of the U.S. You know, U.S. Incorporated. The name of the company is named United States. Don't believe me. Read, 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 the, read the case law on this stuff. When you, when you see a story, for example, in the newspaper, the United States today, they're not talking about a dirt and closed area. They're talking about a company. United States versus so-and-so. They're not talking about the dirt. They're not talking about all 50 states. They can't. It's impossible. It's absolutely retarded to think that way. United States versus Doe. There's plenty of federal court cases that start off with United States versus. The plaintiff cannot be dirt. It's a company. So if you want the benefits of the company, the only way you can get them is either by treaty or by becoming a member of the company. That's how you got Social Security benefits. And that's what screwed up your status. Unbeknownst to mom and dad, 
they were led to believe that you wouldn't be able to get a job unless you were you had a social security number. What's one got to do with the other? One's a federal welfare program. What does that have wait a minute, let me see if I understand this. Am I supposed to believe that McDonald's won't hire me unless I go uh, apply for one that I'm under no obligation to apply for? How does that work? Wait a minute, I can't work at Walmart unless I go ask uh, for Uncle Sam's welfare benefits first? That's a condition of, of, of getting paid to lift stuff and put it on a shelf and organize it and polish the floor? Are you kidding me? It doesn't work that way. Employers, quote unquote, the retailers, Walmart, McDonald's, are required by law to withhold a certain portion of the employee's wage because they're participating in the Social Security program. If you're not participating in the Social Security program, McDonald's can't withhold anything from you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not smart enough to make this kind of stuff up. I found it. It's a, it's a major scam. Our, our parents were misled. Our grandparents were misled. Social Security is a federal welfare program. If you want the benefits, you apply for it. Just that simple. You go to the Social Security uh, office, you fill out an application. You want something Uncle Sam's offering. Uncle Sam says, sure, we'll give you the benefit. Just change your status and become a member of the club. No problem. So your primary status, state citizen, I, I popped out in California, so I'm, I'm California. Unfortunately, my mom and dad uh, did what all our mom and dads did, and they inadvertently stuck me in this contractual relation with USA. And then once I discovered this stuff uh, 30 years ago, I proceeded to uh, withdraw my participation. So basically what I did was what the founders did. I sent Uncle Sam notice, hey, guys, I'm out of here. <laughs> you guys keep your stuff here. There's all your stuff back. Thank you very much. I don't want, that. I don't want access to that stuff. Uh, I'll see you all later. Just leave me alone. I'm, I'm going back in uh, reclaiming my, my, my uh, birth status. I know people are going to. I'm going to sit here over the birth thing. I understand the argument. Okay, my uh, sentient being status when I popped out. Okay, let's avoid the admiralty uh, terminology and stuff like that. I get it. Okay, so um, the place, the location of my nativity was California. And I reclaimed that status. I don't want the stuff that Uncle Sam, I've never asked for any of the stuff Uncle Sam offered, so I just terminated the relationship, and I'm out, as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> now, if they have evidence that uh, is contrary to my what I would assert, they got to belly up to the bar with it. Anyway, I determined that uh, being a state citizen is, and, and the rights protected by the state constitution are, are, are way better than what Uncle Sam offers. And uh, like Obamacare, for example, that doesn't apply to me. I don't want it anyway. Yeah, that, that, that's a benefit for U.S. citizens. Oh, and by the way, 
that's that, that, that's that's who gets driver's licenses. State citizens aren't required to have a driver's license. It tells you right in the vehicle code what a resident is. Are, are you are you participating in the social security program? Yeah. Okay. Are you a citizen? If I don't have a social security number, the Department of Motor Vehicles isn't going to issue me a driver's license. They're only issued U.S. citizens who are in resident in the state. It's messed up, but you can learn about it and, and figure out how to deal with it if you want it. But at the end of the day, the uh, driving privilege is, is, is uh, the privilege to engage in business using a motor vehicle, which is a device used in the business of transportation over the streets and highways. Now, if you don't do it, then why, 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 why have you encumbered yourself? Why have you encumbered your property? The only reason a, a, a cop can legitimately take your car, repossess your car, is because of the state's interest in it. How did the state acquire an interest in what you consider to be yours? You granted the state an interest in your property when you registered it with them. You've got their brand on your horse. The license plate is evidence that you have a contract with the state. Now, what happens if you pull the plates? Well, cop can pull you over for not having plates. Okay. But if the cop takes your car and issues you a notice to appear for no license, no plates, no this, no that, they still got to prove the commerce element, and they never do. And the primary reason they never do, and you wind up losing this because you never raised the issue to begin with. Because, like me, you were deprived of this information when you were forced to go to school. They didn't teach us one minute of contract law. That's how you got the privilege to begin with. You went over and asked for something you didn't have. The state said, sure, no problem, fill out the form. Okay, great. You qualified? You get the privilege, very good. You got a contract with the state. But it's not the license. The license is just evidence of the contract. But it's not the contract itself. A license is a license is a license. It's issued for uh, to someone who wants to engage in business. And it, and it really is that simple. And there's tons of case law in this stuff. This is the value of, of, of reading court cases. I, I, again, I'm, I'm not smart enough to make this stuff up. I found it. I looked at the words, and I thought about what I was reading, and then I went, are you kidding me? What the hell? How come they don't teach us this stuff? Now I got to go through all this bullshit and do all this stuff and write a bunch of stuff I don't want to write, learn how to write stuff I don't want to write, talk to a bunch of people I don't want to talk to. When I couldn't learn about it when I was, before I, I became an adult, and, and, and uh, when I pushed my signature up, uh, pushed my pen across a piece of paper with my signature, uh, and now I, got, now I got a legitimate or valid contract. I wasn't taught anything about contracts. I, was, I wasn't taught how to negotiate. I was, ta I was taught how to beg. 
please, may I have a job? Please, you know. <laughs> I want I want to thank my girlfriend you know, for movies and stuff, man. You know me have a job. Hey, no baseball player uh, fills out an application. It's a place for the Yankees, you know, or the Giants, you know, the Marlins. And, you know, uh, Tom Brady, he, he didn't fill out an application to be quarterback over there, you know, with New England. You know, or John Elway with the Broncos, he didn't do that. They didn't do that. They negotiated. They got contracts. All you folks who have uh, children, make sure they study contract law. Then they can write their own ticket in society. They don't have to beg their way through life. They won't have to go get some retarded job they don't want to do just to get money, like I did. The only reason I went out and got jobs and stuff was because I needed money, not because I actually did what I wanted to do. If I could have got paid for going to the beach, I would, you know, I would have done that. If I if I could have got paid, to, you know, to go camping and, and go to see, you know, rock and roll shows and, and stuff like that, that, you know, that's what I did. But no, I went over and applied for jobs just to get money. And then once once the realization hit and I became aware of what I was doing, I was on my way out the door, and I'm looking for another job. Well, now I've, what I've done is, so basically I was trained to be a dependent. I was trained to be a, a typical uh, nine-to-five kind of guy. There's nothing wrong with that. People are designed for that. I'm not. However, I was never taught how to be a quote-unquote independent contractor you know, or do my own thing. And this is what I've been doing, though, for the last 20, 30 years, whatever. I don't punch a clock. I get up. I do what I, what I do. Nobody holds a gun to my head. I don't have to worry about getting fired. I do what I do. What do I do? Study law. Talk about law. Figure out stuff about law. Share share information with other people. Uh, the more people who are aware of what I'm aware of, my thinking is the better off we're all going to be. Because I don't like being lied to. I don't like being ripped off. And there's a lot of that going on in our society, and I'm fed up. I don't like it. It's not cost effective. So uh, I know it's not exactly Sunday, <laughs> so I'll uh, dismount the bully pulpit. Uh, is there anybody who has any question or comment, Martin? Are you sleeping in church again? I'm here. Oh, there you go. Okay. I'm not checking Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I, know, I, know, I know. I know. Dude, I know what you were doing. You're out there uh, dealing with charcoal briquettes. <laughs> Sorry to you on your keypad, folks. If we have any uh, last minute questions, if not, we're going to wrap it up for the evening. Star two on your keypad or type it in on the Freedom's Radio side. Don't forget to click the submit button. Five, four, three, two, one. Uh, John in Colorado writes in, you must 
claim U.S. citizenship to get a U.S. passport to enter another country, you must have a U.S. passport. How do you get a U.S. passport if you claim only state citizenship? Well, do your homework. Again, ladies and gentlemen, all the answers are at the law library. Remember, state government came before the federal government. The people of the colonies created the, the government within the colonies. Then they got together uh, because they, they, they realized it was in their best interest to get together. So they created this, uh, um, this institution uh, to that would interact with uh, governments of, of other, you know, around the world. So the state government came first, and then the federal government followed. The, the federal government um, uh, is limited in what it can do. That's what the constitutions are. They're, they're limitations and restrictions on the governmental institutions. They give us nothing. We get nothing from the Constitution. We get nothing from the Bill of Rights. All those documents do are acknowledge what we already have. And the purpose of government and the employees who work in government is to help protect the rights that we were born with. So when you're working out your back 40 planting corn or strawberries or whatever, uh, you, you can't be watching the front of your house. And that's, that's the purpose of your government employees. They're helping us uh, protect our, our, our rights and our property and stuff. But, but what's happened is, because we, we've been absent for so long uh, from the business, we get back and we see that the employees are running riot. And they're acting as if it's their company, it's their store, and they can do whatever they want. They can dictate policy to us, the owners, and that doesn't work that way. If you want to know what the passport's all about, look into it. What is the federal government supposed to do? What can it do? What is it required to do? What does it have discretion to do? Look in the Constitution. Everything tracks to the Constitution. The, the, the passport issue isn't, isn't really that difficult. But I, I would suggest that, uh, you know, you, you, you do some uh, footwork and uh, find out what's going on with that thing. State citizens can, can get passports. It's just kind of a, it's a great question. It's just a complicated answer. It requires more time than, than uh, remain. But it, it, it's a good question, though. Anything else? Yeah, and Texas uh, writes in, uh, when I wrote the uh, Texas Secretary of State and asked if the state of Texas had any documents showing that they had title, right, or interest on my name or private automobile, they responded no. They responded no? Yes. Oh, wow. Congratulations, uh, madam or sir. You've got material evidence on state letterhead that you can use in a traffic case to your benefit. Because the, the, the police officer who subjects you to, to the traffic stop is, uh, in fact, denying the exercise and enjoyment of rights that they agreed not to disparage or deny. That, that, that's a great piece of paper. 
that's that's material evidence. You can, you can use that in, in a traffic trial. Uh, for example, um, after I uh, after I went through the divorce proceeding with the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, I began a, a letter writing campaign, and uh, I, I asked four uh, 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 four questions. One of them being, uh, do DMV records reflect that I have anything in my possession belonging to the state. The reason that I asked that question was if, if I, was, I, I was looking for, uh, I had returned everything to the DMV that they had issued to me, the plates, the, the, the paint slip, uh, the, the tab, the license, everything I had, I sent it back. And then I notified them I was withdrawing my limited power of attorney I inadvertently granted. So uh, I didn't have anything belonging to them. They didn't have anything belonging to me. So I wanted material evidence in my possession that I could show to a cop after I pulled those plates because I knew that 5200 was going to be the justification for the cop stopping me, 5200 in the California Vehicle Code. That's, that, that's what they would use to make the stop. So I wanted a document from the DMV Answering my question, do I have anything in my possession? Uh, do DMV records reflect that I have anything in my possession belonging to the state? So I was looking for a no, and I wanted to be able to hand that to a cop so he could see that, hey, pal, uh, proceed at your own risk. You take, you take this property. You're not repossessing something that belongs to the state. You're stealing. Grand larceny. And I've got the evidence to establish that. It took me, ladies and gentlemen, it took me four years to get the answer. That's how reluctant the DMV was to answer. Four years, but I eventually got the answer. And what I got was on state letterhead. It's material evidence. So congratulations. Uh, that's, a, that's a great thing you have from the Secretary of State. Anything else? Uh, no, that'll take care of us. Uh, thank you so much. Mr. Flash, thank you, Martin. Thank you. All right, thank you, Martin. Thank you, everybody, for uh, taking time out of your day. I hope you got a little something to use in your studies, or hopefully your, your, your court case. Look forward to uh, getting together with everybody next week. Have a good evening. All right, uh, folks. Ms. Blackstone does have two ebooks available uh, for a contribution. Uh, infractions are crimes and the so-called traffic stop. These are both PDFs. They can be emailed to you, so once contribution is received, it's a very quick delivery. Also, Mr. Blackstone does have You can also email me directly. Probably be your fastest route for most of you. And that email address is mm 
at yourremedyisinthelaw.com. Join us again tomorrow night, same time, same place. We're having our normal Thursday night call with Mr. Smith, discussing various IRS administrative educational remedies and promoting his book, I Object. Uh, for over a decade now, the GAO report comes out every year. And when it gets to the part about the reported evidence, computer-generated transcripts that the IRS uh, uses for all of their evidence, supports to use for their evidence, is lacking, severely lacking in security and uh, proper uh, uh, information maintenance, things of this nature. And uh, it's interesting to note that the IRS commissioner signs off every year uh, uh, to the GAO report as being correct and accurate. That's what we'll be discussing tomorrow night. Until next time, everyone have a pleasant evening and be well. The conference is now completed. Goodbye.
It's 10 o'clock.
goes to Asco, not so good the last three times, but it went the other way. How about Scorasco, what made him so good our Chevy player would be? Well, he was around the play all night. He had really good stop. He had a situation where he hit that early in, he just kind of worked, but he held it down tonight. He's going to pull it for him to have time to save up. That's his right zone. The person whom you're trying to reach is currently unavailable. Please leave a message after the beep. Uh, hi, Bill. This is Richard from Missouri. I was talking with John Michael recently, and we were discussing how you were doing. I was wondering if you wanted to call and say howdy. 
Please uh, give me a buzz at the earliest convenience. Thank you. 
Excuse me, I'm going to go down I need your attention. Excuse me, I'm going to Thank you. 
It's 11 o'clock. Thank you. 
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.